And so as we um, gather our offerings and our tithes for the morning, I um, wanted to, to bring something up that we had just briefly mentioned last week. But uh, if you remember when we, um, we first started last week, I had asked if you were here. Um, how many of you noticed there was something a little different uh, when we walked in? And, and about 75% of you raised your hand and said you really had no idea what was different. And then I said, let's look up. And we all looked up and the chandeliers are gone. It's nice and bright in here. We have more modern lighting. And uh, it's just great. And it's a testimony to the fact that God is doing amazing things here. And he, he does things in every realm. And uh, we're moving forward. You know, we're quickly approaching the end of this year, 2016, and looking forward to what God will do in and through us for a new year of 2017. And so the first few weeks of uh, January, we'll be looking at sort of uh, that vision for the new year and things that we're going to be doing. But I just wanted to, again, point your attention to something like this. I mean, there's been little changes, you know, throughout the year around the church, some aesthetic and some more necessary uh, just so that we can continue to worship together and uh, do all the ministries that we want to do. But uh, there'll be a lot more of this coming up next year. And so there will be opportunities for us to pray as God moves forward and we make changes here at Trinity. Uh, opportunities for us to give like we've never given before. If you were in the Dave Ramsey class with us, it was a famous saying of his. Um, and so we just want to kind of use this as a testimony that we have new lighting in here. But there's much more that we would like to do uh, as a leadership and many of you talking to, to many of you throughout the year about improvements we can make, not only to our facility, but to the ministries that we have and uh, new ministries we'd like to start and uh, making changes to current ones and things like that. And so uh, we just want to take this opportunity to say, you know what, we have some new lighting in here and we're shedding light uh, uh, on, uh, on what's going on here and all that God is doing and preparing to do. And, um, but, you know, change is certainly a part of life, isn't it? But I think as we get older, and I'm noticing this myself too, we kind of like change a little bit less and less. Isn't that true? You know, and I kind of thought, especially in my younger years, we all probably did that, like, I'd never, you know, that, that would never uh, wear on me. But I just think it's part of the maturing. I'd say instead of getting older, maturing, right? Is that a little better? The maturing process, right? But we know that change is inevitable. And change is sort of that only constant in life, right? Isn't there that saying that the only constant in life is change, right? And, and the world changes around us and change happens so rapidly. It seems like it happens uh, more rapidly, like quicker than it ever used to. And so, um, and so we need to, to always be ready to respond to what God is already doing, right? And as we remember from the book of Acts, and we're going to see this very clearly this morning in Acts chapter 9, you can turn to it in your Bibles if you like, Uh, 9, it's just 1 to 31, it'll be up on the screen for you in a couple of minutes, but it's the very familiar story of uh, Paul's meeting with the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. It's a very popular story, a very uh, well-known Bible story about a very well-known uh, leader in the church, and that is the Apostle Paul. And there's a lot that we can glean from him, and this is sort of we see him bursting on the scene and, and how God brings transformation and change 
in his life in a really big way. So that's what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. Just uh, one or two, like, really <clears throat> basic but very important and critical principles uh, of God and how he works in our life that we can learn from, um, from Paul's Damascus Road experience. But, you know, talking about change, you can't really get more dramatic than what happened to Paul, right? And so we kind of keep that in mind. And, you know, um, it's interesting to see changes that have been made uh, over the years. You know, I was just um, reading about, uh, you know, some of the oldest people in the country. It's amazing. People live, you know, like 104, 110, 114. And sometimes I think, I don't know if I want to live that long. You know, I do want to see the Lord Jesus, but I don't want to leave my family and friends, right? Man, that's old, right? But I mean, what a what an amazing story it would be to kind of sit and, and talk to somebody that's lived that long. It was just a story of a gentleman who um, was one of the, the last survivors of uh, Pearl Harbor. And we just kind of had that remembrance just recently, 75 years, right? And, and um, here was this gentleman, he was 99 years old, one of the few survivors, and uh, he was originally from Hawaii. And so what he did is he volunteered his time uh, to kind of be a greeter at the Pearl Harbor Memorial. He did that for many years. And just after uh, the, the most recent remembrances, he passed away at the age of 99. But just think about somebody like him, all that he experienced in life. You know, and I talk about how things change so rapidly. I mean, you get a new phone and all of a sudden they have a, there's another iPhone coming out, right? It's like, hey, I got the, the 6. Now there's a, you got the 6, well, you know. And you think you're all hip and cool, and here's another one. And things change so quickly, right? But if you were to take, if you were to like interview or talk to somebody like that that's lived for the past hundred years, just think about the changes that they've seen in their lifetime. You know, pretty amazing. And so, just wanted to share a quick little story. I think it's really interesting. But um, you know, um, there's uh, if you think about things like. Um, uh, like the the railroads. Now we have lots of different means of transportation, and of course our, our cars drive faster, and we drive faster, and um, you know things just happen in the world so quickly. But um, this is something I was reading about, and maybe you've never kind of thought about this. And but uh, did you ever think about why the tracks on the railroad are that certain distance apart? No, I never did either. I never really cared about that. But I kind of came across this. It's really interesting, this history. So if you think about train tracks, right? There is a standard, they call it a gauge. It's a standard gauge of the distance between the inside of those two tracks. And it's pretty much standard, not only in the country, but throughout the world. And it's four feet, eight and one half inches. So four feet, eight and a half inches. I know you're really dying to know that, right? That's a difference. That's the distance between the two rails. So it's like, how did we get that, and why is it? <clears throat> and why is it such a standard? Well, what's really interesting to know is that um, when the American railroads were starting to be built, okay, um, they brought a lot of the first trains over from England. They kind of had a, um, you know, a railway set up. And so a lot of the British expatriates had come over and helped to build some of the first railroads. And so they came over with their tools and their measurements and it was four and, and, and eight and a half inches. And so that's how we started to build the American railroads, right? It's kind of like we can't get rid of our, 
we can't get past our history with England, right? It's like we have this attachment, but that's kind of where it, it came from. But then you think like, well, why did that, why did they in, in, uh, in England, why did they have it at four feet, eight and a half inches? Well, it's because the original sort of uh, first version of the railways, they called it tramways, was also four feet, eight and one half inches. So when they built their railroads, they kind of kept it the same. But then the very first tramways in England, where did they get that from? Well, it was because what happened was they had originally developed wagons, right? And this goes well before us back in, in England. They had developed wagons for transportation way before trains. And the distance between the wagon wheels was four feet, eight and a half inches. And so they just kind of transferred. So then why was it? We can keep going, right? I'm almost done. So why were the why were the, the wagon wheels four, four feet, eight and a half inches wide? Why did the early like settlers or the people in, in, uh, in England do that? Well, that, here's really interesting. Because the ruts in the roads, in the original roads that they were riding on, were four feet, eight and one half inches wide. So when they started to build wagons for transportation, they didn't want to have to make all new roads. And, of course, you remember your days of watching Little House on the Prairie. You can see them going along, right? And, and, and there's, like, ruts in the road from the, the wagon wheels. So they had to make it so it fit. Because if it was a little wider and narrower, like, it wouldn't fit on the road. So why were the ruts in the road? I'll tell you next week. No, I'm just joking. It goes all the way back to Imperial Rome. To Imperial Rome to the days of the Romans. Because when they built their chariots, they needed it to be just wide enough for two horses to fit. So the width, basically, of two horses was about four feet, eight and one half inches to go before the chariot or before the cart. So they're the ones that built the first road systems. And so there were these ruts, these ancient ruts in the roads. And so when uh, the people of England, when they started to develop, they had to to, you know, a form of transportation, so they built their wagons about that size. Why should they build new roads? So it's kind of like, why do we do things the way we do it? Oh, we've always done it that way, right? It kind of goes back to that interesting, we kind of still do it that way. Now, some things, it's not worth changing. But many things need progress. They need to move forward. So there's this... Um, Interesting bit of U.S. history. Here is a letter that was written. It was written when the first railroads were introduced in the U.S. It was written by a certain person because he was afraid of the negative changes that railroads would make to the new country. See, some people really feared that railroads would be the downfall of America. So here's just a little excerpt from a letter that was sent to President Jackson on January 31st, 1829. Here's what the letter says. As you may know, Mr. President, railroad carriages are pulled at the enormous speed of 15 miles an hour by engines which, in addition to endangering life and limb of passengers, they roar and snort their way through the countryside setting fire to crops, scaring the livestock, and frightening women and children. The Almighty certainly never intended that people should travel at such breakneck speed. 
Signed, Martin Van Buren, Governor of New York. Isn't that interesting? So in 1829, there was this big fear that the trains were going to roar through at the breakneck speed of 15 miles an hour, just scaring women and children. We've come quite a long way since then. But change is not only a part of life, but it's inevitable. But here's probably the biggest lesson that we can learn from Paul's um, meeting of the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, we'll read in just a second, is this. That change really starts from God. We're talking spiritually in our lives. Change, true transformation from the inside out is not initiated by us. It's initiated by God and His sovereignty. You're going to see that as a theme Throughout the book of Acts, we've seen it already. Probably uh, not any clearer than we're going to see this morning. So change is initiated by God. And that's a very important principle and doctrine in the church. Is that we remember that it's not about us, but it's about God. It's not about us trying harder to make changes. It's about God initiating that change. It's kind of a good topic too as we kind of come to the close of one year and and look forward to the beginning of another year when we often make New Year's resolutions and we talk about things that we're going to change in our lives. Think about that as sort of a backdrop and a context for what we're about to read. Um, in Acts 9, 1-31, you know, um, Isaac Newton, he, um, he had a le- many laws that he discovered. and There's one that's called the first law of motion, also called the law of inertia. It says, everything continues in a state of rest unless it is compelled to change by forces impressed upon it. So everything will stay at rest unless something from the outside, forces not of its own, are impressed upon it. And that's what we see happen spiritually. That it is God who initiates change. So let's look at the passage. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus. So you remember we met Saul briefly back in Acts chapter 7 at the end at the stoning of Stephen. Remember that? They had thrown their cloaks at the feet of, it said, a young man named Saul. Saul was a persecutor of the church. And so God gets his attention in a big way. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and 
although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night, led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how Damascus, uh, how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. They were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It's a great story. So there's a lot in here. Now, this story is recounted three times in Acts. We're going to see it later in Acts, I think it's 22 and 26. So what we're going to do is as we go through the whole book, when we get to the other accounts, 
of Paul's Damascus Road experience, we're going to look at different aspects of it. A good thing to do, um, as we're going through Acts, if you read all three accounts and put them together, you'd get a much more detailed and kind of fuller picture of the whole event. Some of the things um, that actually happened aren't mentioned in this particular account of it. Uh, But if you put it all together, it's truly amazing. But we're really just going to focus on this particular account and what's given here and why and what we can glean from it. Just a couple of really important principles for us today as followers of Christ and as the church. It said there at the end that through it all, they had comfort in the Holy Spirit and the church multiplied. How many times have we seen that already in the first eight chapters of Acts? where we keep seeing that sort of update from Luke who wrote the book, and it multiplied, and it grew. And a 1,000 more, and 3,000, and 5,000 more were added to their numbers. Pretty amazing. So the first thing we can see is that God is at work. He is orchestrating all of the details. We'll see more of that as we go. I also think it was kind of funny in verse 31. It says, um, so the church throughout the whole area, Judea, Galilee, Samaria, It had peace. You know why they had peace? Because they got Paul out of there. (laughs) That's why. He was a troublemaker, but now for the Lord. What an amazing transformation. But I mean, he was doing the right thing and doing what God called him to do. But he was stirring up a lot of trouble. Not on purpose. but because he was preaching the resurrected Christ. And he was doing it so boldly, like none of them even had before. It said that they plotted to kill him. See, the Jews there, they were expecting Paul to come and do just what the disciples had heard. That he had the authority to come into Damascus and take all of the followers of the way, that means Christians, this is before they were even called Christians, they were called the way. Remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life, right? So they were called the way by many people. And so Paul was, he was bent on going there and persecuting the church. It said at the beginning of the passage that he was still breathing threats and murder. Some really strong words in the original language there. Almost like you can picture like a bull that's like snorting through his nose and getting ready to charge. That's like, that's like Saul of Tarsus. He's ready to wipe out the way completely. It even says in verse 2 um, that if you found any belonging to the way, men and women, he didn't discriminate men or women, that he would bind them, put them in jail, or kill them if necessary. So he was bent on destroying the early church. So here he is going up to Damascus, and basically the story is this. Saul learns that Damascus, which is way north uh, of Jerusalem, pretty far trek, that there were a lot of converts there. See, we know that Christianity is spreading, right? And we know from the, the last couple of chapters, it's starting to spread outside of the area of Jerusalem. So it's reached Damascus. There's lots of uh, believers there now. So he's going up there. But you know what? The authority of, of uh, Paul didn't reach up there that far. And so he went to the high priest. He kind of got permission. They called it letters. He got like letters of authorization that he could go and do what he needed to do. So he went up there. So on his way, On the road to Damascus, as he's getting close, this is what happens. It says in verse 3, a very familiar story for us, um, suddenly a light from heaven 
shown around him. Now, again, in the other accounts, it kind of fills in more of what happens. But basically, the, the main point is that a light shone from heaven stopped everybody in their tracks, Paul and his whole party. It says in verse 4, falling to the ground, he heard a voice. Now, from the other accounts, you know what happened? The, basically, what we can tell is that all of the other people that were with him, they saw the light. They were knocked to the ground. They heard a noise. They couldn't understand what it was. The noise was only the voice of the Lord Jesus speaking directly to Saul. Do you ever feel like that? We, you go somewhere and you, something happens. You're like, God is looking right at me. This like this is just for me. Sometimes it happens with a sermon, right, or a message, or you hear it on the radio, and you're just like, man, this it's like this guy's talking right to me, right? So they all fall down, and they're down on the ground. This light is like blinding them to the point where it's like they fall down. How bright it must have been, right? For them to like get knocked off their feet and disoriented. So they all fall down, and it says, falling to the ground, he heard the voice, and the voice said simply this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Before we even see his response, notice this. That the Lord Jesus, it is Jesus, says, why, first of all, he says, Saul, Saul. You see elsewhere in Scripture that you see kind of two names put together? Martha, Martha. When he approaches Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It was, it was kind of like a warning. You know how when you were a kid and your mom called you by your middle name? You know, or repeated your name, you're just like, okay, that's it, this is it. You know, so that was kind of the thing. It was a warning, just like, Saul, Saul. But Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? See, Saul was out to destroy the way, the church. What a great reminder of our connection with the Lord Jesus that Paul goes on in many of his letters that he would later write that we have in the Bible about our connection with the Lord Jesus as a body in the head, right? That Jesus is the head of the church and we are the body. We all play a part. It's that great picture. And so he being the head of the church, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Because he's saying, you're persecuting my people, my church. You might as well be persecuting me. So the ascended risen Lord appears to him and in the voice says, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? So that word Lord, it has a couple of different meanings. I don't believe that at that moment he knew it was Jesus, but he certainly knew that it wasn't some other person. It was a deity of some kind. So he called him a name of respect. Who are you, Lord? And Jesus simply replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city. And you will be told what you are to do. That's all he says. Very simple. In the other accounts, we see uh, some words that Paul uses to reply. We'll get there um, when we get to that part of the, of the book. But he says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. At that moment, just kind of, just think about, put yourself in Saul's shoes. I mean, he was so determined to wipe out the way the church, all of the Christians. Even if he were to kill them, he thought nothing of it. He was at the stoning of, of Stephen. He was orchestrating all of this. He was a leader in all of this. He was vehement and vitriolic in his 
hatred and anger towards the church. And now he's knocked to his feet, humbled like no one was ever humbled. And the Lord Jesus says, it's me, the person that you're persecuting. Can you imagine the immediate feeling of guilt, shame, like unbelief, just like the overcome. You know that when we commit a sin and we're convicted of it and we repent, just that feeling of remorse that we have towards that sin and being disobedient and letting God down. So all of a sudden, Saul is confronted by the Lord Jesus, by God himself. And he says, it's me, the one you're persecuting. He could have just said, it's me, Jesus, the risen Lord, whatever. He said, no, it's me, the one that you're persecuting. And he says, rise and enter the city. I'll tell you what to do when you get there. Very simple, no further instructions. But God gives him a clear direction. Right? He confronts him, confronts his sin because he's persecuting the church. Then he gives him a direction. The same thing happens with us. At the moment that we meet the Lord Jesus, no matter how long that process takes in your life, maybe that you had a Damascus Road experience. Maybe it was very dramatic in your life. Maybe you felt like Paul and you were knocked down by a light or something where you were just totally just blown away. Or maybe it was sort of a gradual coming to the understanding of the truth of the Gospel over years of of somebody maybe sharing it with you. That's my story. You know, as a young believer, I kind of, not that I felt ashamed of my testimony, but I kind of felt like it didn't have any power behind it. It took many years of of my best friend Tom just kind of sharing the Gospel with me and his father, and, and it came to a point after many years as a young man I'm just, you know, fresh into college, that he and I both, we kind of like, we had this moment like, this does make sense. And that was the moment that God removed the veil and we surrendered our lives to the Lord. That's what happens with all of us. But the process of getting there can look very different. And so I've come to understand that, you know, there is power in my kind of testimony too because it's very common. But God knows exactly what we need. Remember, He created you. He knows you. See, He knows how you're wired. He knows how to to orchestrate things in your life to bring you to the point where He wants to bring you. So, of course, He knew Saul and what Saul was doing. And so not only did He confront him with his sin, but He gave him a direction. The same thing applies to us. When we become followers of Christ at that moment, we have a directive. You know that? We have a directive and we have goals that are set for us. That we are very simply to first wait on Him to direct us. Like Jesus says, go into the city and wait until you'll be told what to do. He says the same thing with us. First, to rely on Him. Remember what I said at the beginning? It is God who initiates the connection. God who initiates that intervention, that That original connection. It's God who is orchestrating all of this. And it starts with Him. Our part is to be willing. Our part is not to try harder, to be more like Him, to listen harder. It's to surrender more. I've said that before and I'll always say that. Because it's so important we understand what our part in that whole process is. Is that we simply come and surrender. It's like that idea of what are we about to do next week is give and receive gifts. 
What do you do when you receive a, a gift at Christmas morning and you just reach out your hands and accept it and receive it? And it's, it's, it's humbling. That somebody would go through that trouble to think of you and buy a gift and wrap it and present it to you. That's what God did in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why we celebrate Christmas. The gift of the newborn King. And so Paul was called, confronted by a sin, but he was called to go and wait for instructions. Do you remember the instructions that Jesus gave to His disciples? When He said, I want you to go and share the Gospel, the good news. Right? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What did he say? He didn't say, now get going. He said, now just stay and wait until the promise comes. That was the Holy Spirit. Remember that? Wait till you get that power. He gives the same direction to Paul. Because we're going to see what happens is once he goes up to Damascus, he's led by those who are with him because he stood speechless. Right? And he was blinded by that light. So they had to carry him, kind of kind of walk with him and help him into Damascus. And he waited there until the Lord sent Ananias through a vision to go and do what? Lay hands on him and pray that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, Paul had to go and wait for the filling of the Holy Spirit so he could have the power to do what God called him to do, just like the disciples, just like us. That we are to see what it is that God is already doing, already orchestrating in our lives. You know, it's so cool to think that right now, as we sit here in this place, as we are talking through the Scripture, I can guarantee you that God, the Creator, God of the universe, is orchestrating details in your life to lead you and to guide you. To do something. Whether it's today, tomorrow, whether it's an immediate thing or a bigger vision that He has for your life, whatever it may be, at this very moment, the God of the universe is orchestrating all of the circumstances and details, working it out for you, for me. What's our part into that? To receive it. To wait. To receive it. But we have to be willing and vulnerable before Him. Speaking about vulnerable, look at the change. We're talking about change. Here was Paul marching into Damascus. He's got his letters of authority. He's got his marching orders. He's going in with his group, and he is going to take out the way. But look at how he actually enters the city of Damascus. He's blind. He's weak. And he has to be helped in by other men. Talk about being humble. Can you imagine? There was probably some Jews that were waiting for him. They knew he was coming. They're like, here he comes. It can't be him. That's him. God had gotten a hold of him. Maybe that's the same for you where when God called you, your life was transformed from the inside out. No, we don't change. I mean, we don't immediately look different. Some of the things in our life might change like that. But people start to notice, don't they? something different about you. People would have noticed right away there was something different about Saul of Tarsus. So kind of skipping through, what happens is we see at the same time that he is now waiting in Damascus, because Jesus said, go and wait, and so he waited. And he's blind, and he's weak. 
And it says in verse 9, for three days he was blind, he didn't eat or drink. Talk about waiting. He did nothing. He couldn't even see. So at the same time, God calls a faithful servant, Ananias, different from the Ananias who was married to Sapphira, of course, because he's dead. So a different guy. He says, um, the Lord appears to him in a vision. I am, he says, uh, it is me, the Lord. Rise and go to the street called Straight. It was actually the name of the street, like Main Street. In Damascus, there was two parallel roads that ran from east and west, both sides of the city. One of them was called Straight. There you go. So and that's where this guy Judas lived. And so that's where he was. So he told Ananias in a vision, go to Judas's house who lived on Straight Street and go in because you're going to see a man of Tarsus named Saul and he's praying. And I want you to go there, lay hands on him so he can be healed and get the Holy Spirit. Then, of course, in uh, 15 to 18, Ananias is like, really, Saul? I've heard about him. He's coming to persecute us. Are you talking about the same guy? Right? And Jesus is like, yeah, kind of wait till you see what, what I did to him. Right? It's like what he's saying. So then we see at the, at the end of that in verse 17, he goes and he follows the Lord's instructions, being obedient. Ananias shows up. He calls him Brother Saul. And that should have been encouraging because now he's Brother Saul. And he tells him why he was there, laid hands on him, gave him the Holy Spirit. God did. And it says in verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. Disgusting, right? It's kind of like fish scales. It's basically what happened. So whatever God had, uh, Jesus had done to cover his eyes and to blind him, it fell off. What a great picture of what happens with us. Elsewhere in Scripture it says that before we are saved. Before we come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah, that our eyes are blinded to the truth. There's like a veil. You know, when you see a bride and she's coming down the aisle, she's got a veil, right? She can't, you know, she can't see. It's like that idea. There's a veil. Only God can remove that veil. When we're sharing our faith with other people, we're not convincing them into, the, into heaven, Right? We're not going to debate somebody into the kingdom. It is God who initiates that change. It is God who initiates salvation. What an important doctrine of the church that is. That it all starts from Him. It is not a works-based faith that we believe in here. It is by grace we have been saved through faith. Grace alone. Faith alone. Christ alone. We cannot work or do enough good to gain God's favor. It all starts with Him. So we all need to be ready, if we haven't already, for that Damascus Road encounter. No matter what it looks like in our lives, we will be confronted by the truth of who Jesus is. What do we do with that? It's simply, what is our response? So then, for the rest of the passage, we see that Paul goes about and immediately he's Proclaiming once he starts to gain strength back and he starts eating and he can see, he goes and he's he's preaching it. Right away he's preaching it. It says in, in Damascus, in the synagogues. Because you remember the first Christians in the, the early church, they were mostly Jews, right? So where did they meet? They were in the synagogue. So he went and there of course were still Jews there. They weren't converted yet. So he's preaching the good news that he is the Son of God. All throughout, so much so. And being so bold... That he's a troublemaker. And so they're ready to kill him. What a change that is. Verse 23. 
After many days, the Jews plotted to kill him. But they found out, so the disciples came and said, Saul, we love you. You're doing a great job. It's amazing what God has done. But it's a little too much right now. That's kind of the impression. So like, they're ready to kill you, and we need you to be around for a while because we get it. You're one of us now, so we need to help you out of here. So they actually had to lower him down in a basket by at nighttime through an opening in the wall, right? You can picture him. He's probably in this basket. They're lowering him down. He's probably still preaching. He's still preaching. They're lowering him down. And so then he goes back to when he came to Jerusalem. He attempted to join the disciples. The ones in Jerusalem, they still weren't sure, kind of wrapping up this story, right? They weren't sure. They're like, this is Saul, really? Can you imagine, again, remember the hatred he had. Now all of a sudden he's preaching the gospel. They're like, how could this be? What a dramatic transformation in his life. And so finally, Barnabas comes along and has to kind of give testimony, like, yes, he is. Barnabas becomes a good friend, a right-hand man to, to Saul who now starts going by the name of Paul. We'll see that soon. And so then it says, once he went back to Jerusalem, there was sort of peace, right? And the church continued to grow. An amazing story of what happens to Saul of Tarsus on the way into Damascus. He was the leader of the persecution of the church by the Jews. He was the leader of that. But on his way, right before he gets to where he was going, God confronts him. God gets his attention in an amazing way. So think about that moment when God got a hold of your heart. For some of you, maybe it really was dramatic. You hear people call, you know, talking about how they needed to hit rock bottom, whatever that looked like, before they could just do nothing else and just say, Lord, I'm yours. I've heard people mention that kind of story many times. They keep running from God, running from God, right? Running from God. And finally, one too many times, God gets their attention and says, I can't run anymore. Maybe you're here this morning and you kind of feel like, that's me. I've been running from God. I know there's some truth there, but I'm not willing. I'm not ready. You know what God would say? What is it you're waiting for? God comes open arms he offers the gift of jesus he says accept it and then he can take you into his arms that's what a loving heavenly father does that's what he wants to do with all of us now especially if you're here this morning and you have not yet made that decision to surrender your heart and your mind to the lord jesus christ today would be the day that you would simply come before god and recognize what happened to saul exactly what's going to have to happen to all of us because everybody at some point in their life is going to have to decide what do i do about jesus remember those old wristbands you have said wwjd like what would jesus do but it's kind of also that response like yeah what would jesus do but what am i supposed to do what's my response because every single person that's living or has been alive or will be alive until the lord returns has to make a decision, what am I going to do with Jesus of Nazareth? Because everybody knows that he lived. It's historically proven. He was a real man. He was a, a teaching rabbi. There's lots of people that love to hear 
about the teaching of Jesus. Yeah, he taught peace and love, and that's good stuff. But you know that Jesus also claimed to be God himself, and that he would die and then come back to life, and he actually did? That's the same Jesus. What are you going to do with that truth? See, Paul, who was Saul at the time, was confronted. There was that initial contact. The same thing happens with us. There's that initial contact with the truth. And then it's simply, what is our response to the truth? Jesus says, it is me. Like he said to Saul, it is I. I am Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. We might not think, I'm not going to end with this, we might not think that before that moment that we surrender our lives to the Lord, that we're persecuting him. But we are, and we went over this um, a while ago, that we are considered enemies of the living God before we are considered his friends. Because we are naturally disobedient to him because of our sinful nature. So we are enemies to the living God, the one who created us. But he will get our attention. He will initiate that contact. And then what is our response? You know, finally, um, we're going to see this when we come to Acts 22 and 26. It'll take us a while to get there. We see the other accounts. There's one really important thing, that uh, detail that's filled in here. In one of those accounts, we see Saul actually give a response to Jesus. When Jesus says, when he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. We see in the other accounts, you know what he said? At that moment, when he was confronted and he understood the life he had been living, and the enormity and severity of his sin and persecution of God's people, he simply replies, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Jesus says, go and await. And then I will tell you what to do. That is to be our response as well. From the moment that we have accepted Christ, from that moment until he returns for his church, That should always be our question. But from day one, our response to him is, Lord, what would you have me do? Because that's what we're going to be judged on when we get to heaven. Not on whether or not we're going to spend eternity with him or not. Our salvation is secure. You believe that, right? I hope you do. But when we do get to heaven and we meet with the Lord Jesus, we will have to give an account for what we have done with that freedom and that salvation. And so from day one, from that moment on, our question, our response simply is, what would you have me do? You see, going back to kind of how we started, God is orchestrating all the details. Even now, He's orchestrating things in your life. Things that you don't even know what's going to happen. You know how you come up with certain scenarios, the way your life is going to play out or any situation? Did you ever notice how God comes up with the perfect scenario? It's one that you never even thought of. Like, I didn't see that coming. That's how great God is. That's the way he works. We have to be willing to accept that and to be ready in all situations to say, Lord, what will you have me do? We say that every day when we get up. God, what will you have me do today? What will you have me do? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the amazing story of the incredible transformation that you caused, that you caused in the life of Saul of Tarsus. 
Father, we thank you for stories like that, especially with somebody like Saul who went on to write so much of these letters that we cherish so much that tell us about you and about how we are to believe and to live in a life following after you. But God, we do thank you that you cause change and transformation in our hearts, in our minds, just like you did with Saul of Tarsus. Father, we know that you tell us in this story and others that that you count him to be one of your greatest servants, a voice for you once calling for the death of your believers, of your followers now, speaking the words of truth and life. God, may we recognize that change in us, that you brought each of us from death to life, that we were once blind like Saul, but you have shown us the great light, the light of the world in Jesus, and now we can see. We thank you for that amazing transformation that you have made in us from the inside out. We praise you, God. Help us to remember that each and every day, and that our response to that transformation would be, Lord, what would you have me do today? And then when we do, whatever it is that we follow you to do, wherever you call us to go, that we would give you all the glory for it. So, Father, continue to bless us. Lead the way, Holy Spirit. Give us the courage and the humility to follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.